Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Ben Stockdale. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. I'm Jarvis Harrington, the intern for the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Bringing the latest in clean energy right to your ears. Yeah, heard. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, today we are bringing the dirty to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. That's right, Ben. So what's the lowdown on today's episode? The lowdown on this episode is that we are bringing in an expert on the dirtiest of the dirty. We're talking about coal energy with Dave Rogers from the Sierra Club. He works with their Beyond Coal campaign. He's talking about how to get coal off the grid and how to do that in a way that makes economic sense for ratepayers and utilities and also make sure that we're accounting for for the people who are part of the coal industry and how we can make this a positive transition for them. Definitely, and I think he also provides a very unique perspective into the history of coal use in North Carolina and where it is today. Now, Ben, what country is getting our squeaky clean shout out today? Yes, we are saying namaskar to our listeners in India. So thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate you joining us on the show. And uh, maybe we could do a live episode in India. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, namaskar. Yeah. <laughs> and Jarvis, who's getting our city shout out today? Yes, our city shout out goes to our neighbors in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. So hello to all of you. Yes, hello to all of you, maybe uh, three, four, five of you. Yeah. I, don't know. I, yeah, yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't know how many <laughs> listeners we have in Rocky Mount, but I know we have a few because you showed up on our stats. So that's kind of how we do this. We look and see who's listening where, and we give you shout-outs. We give you appreciation. So those out in Rocky Mount, thank you so much. And it's the hometown fun fact of Thelonious Monk, the piano player. Oh, wow. You learn something every day. Look there at that. you go. There you go. Well, without further ado, Jarvis, should we jump into this awesome episode? I say let's get into it. All right, let's get dirty. Perfect. <laughs> clean energy. Clean, clean, clean energy. Our guest today is the Southeast Deputy Regional Director for the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal Campaign. The Sierra Club is the nation's oldest and largest grassroots environmental group, and their mission is to explore, enjoy, and protect the wild places of the earth, to practice and promote their responsible use of the earth's ecosystems and resources, to educate and enlist humanity to protect and restore the quality of the natural and human environment, and to use all lawful means to carry out these objectives. Our guest manages and supports the Sierra Club's work focus on the electricity sector across the Southeast, including their work in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Florida. Our guests and the Sierra Club's focus is to eliminate the use of coal by 2030 and to achieve a 100% clean energy future by 2050. Friends of the pod, let's give a squeaky clean welcome to today's very special guest, Dave Rogers. Dave, Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited uh, to get a chance to talk to y'all. Yeah, you know, I mean, like we were talking about a second ago, 
we focus, of course, this is the clean energy podcast, so we talk a lot about clean energy. We talk a lot about solar and wind and stuff like that. But when you think about the transition, obviously you have to look at what resources are already in place. And so we're really glad to have your perspective on this because I think it's it's hard to have a conversation about clean energy if you're not talking about uh, the fossil fuel resources that we're trying to replace. Yeah, I'm uh, bringing the dirty to... <laughs> yeah. I find I'm often the person doing that in North Carolina. Yes, bringing the dirtiest squeaky clean. Love it, love it. Cool. Well, let's jump into this conversation. Can you walk us a little bit through maybe North Carolina's history of coal production, kind of where coal production is, why it's been traditionally part of our energy mix, and maybe you know where, we, where we've been in the last 10 to 15, 20 years? Yeah, I think the first thing to note is that North Carolina has little to no production when it comes to coal. So I think that's one of the things that uh, your listeners and people across North Carolina um, should be aware of because I think it is a big factor in our decision-making process as we move forward. So most of the coal used in North Carolina today and historically has come from Appalachia, maybe the Illinois Basin around southern Illinois. Um, So North Carolina's history of coal is largely around burning it Uh, to produce electricity. And that's not unique to North Carolina. That's largely uh, the history of electricity across the United States. For much of the last century, the uh, coal industry supplied the fuel that has really powered the Industrial Revolution. So from the turn of the 20th century through up to about, you know, 10, 15 years ago, Um, North Carolina was largely powered by coal. Uh, Duke Energy had roughly 14, I think, coal fire power plants across the state. Um, Those plants started retiring uh, at a pretty high level right around 2010 with the uh, Clean Smokestacks Act that was passed in North Carolina. Shout out to Brownie Newman because he's a county commissioner over there in Buncombe County. And I know that he was one of the leaders that was leading that. And that was a big part of his work uh, years ago. So shout out to you, Brownie, if you're listening. I'll probably send this to you. So uh, thank you so much for your work. Yeah, I think that I cannot take any credit for that legislation passing. I think it was the work of a lot of great advocates all across uh, the state. And I think that's really the launching point uh, for North Carolina in terms of shifting away from coal largely. Uh, So at that point, roughly half of Duke's coal fleet uh, retired uh, in relation to that legislation passing. And then the other thing that's largely changed, which uh, y'all are more well-versed in, is just the rise of solar and the rise of clean energy. So if you look to 2000, 2001, 2002, there wasn't really any notable clean energy in North Carolina. And that's really accelerated from about 2005 or 2007 on. And so that is that rise in clean energy has continued to put additional pressure on um, the coal fleet, while at the same time the price of gas has gone down and technology has advanced around the gas uh, industry as well that has shifted interest from utilities across the country, but particularly in North Carolina, to uh, expanding gas as a way to meet our energy needs as well. So, you know, we we think about coal in a different way than you maybe would have thought about coal 20 years ago, right? How has the messaging and the communications of coal changed over the years? And was there a tipping point at which coal was seen as something that needs to be removed from the grid? Uh, I'm not sure if there was any single event or, you know, uh, 
you know, project that, you know, I guess, and, and what's a little bit about the Beyond Coal campaign's history? Yeah, I think um, the Beyond Coal's uh, campaign's history really launched in response uh, to the Bush administration's effort to massively expand our reliance of coal. So uh, between 2005 and 2010, there was a, a plan to massively expand on coal generation, build more than 200 new coal plants across the country. And the Beyond Coal campaign really just grew up from grassroots resistance to a set of those plants. Um, places like in northern Illinois, southern Wisconsin, they were fighting a coal plant that was going to be built. Um, in different places, different battles started uh, to pop up to resist those efforts. And the Beyond Coal campaign grew out of that. Volunteers, experts, attorneys, organizers, um, starting to coordinate and work together to operationalize the effort to oppose those coal plants. And so that was largely successful. Actually, we are down to, there is only one plant in the entire country that's in the uh, proposed category right now. It is a plant Washington in Georgia. Uh, it is the last coal plant that's not existing that is still on the drawing board. Uh, we're confident that in uh, this year we should be able to remove that and get it um, get the company to actually just walk away officially and make sure that it's never built. Wow, that's even, I mean, honestly, that's even surprising to hear, though, that that there are plans for future coal. I mean, that is, that's, it's almost unbelievable, but thank you. Plan. Right. Plan. <laughs> yeah, right, singular, <laughs> singular, exactly. So coal provides us and has historically provided us with a lot of electricity and it's been a part of the story of America's and the globe's economic growth. So what is the problem with coal? Yeah, and I think it's uh, it's still, uh, while coal is going away, not as quickly as we'd like in the United States, I think one challenge that we have as a global society is how do we apply what the lessons we've learned and work to transition the rest of the globe away from coal at a rate that we need to to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. Um, there's a whole bunch of problems with coal, and I think that's one of the things that no matter where your priorities and values lie as a person, it probably doesn't make sense to rely on coal regardless of those values. So from an environmental perspective, it is it's dirty, and it's dirty from how you get it out of the ground to what you do with it after you burn it. Right? So the legacy of Appalachia is pollution and contamination of fresh, beautiful drinking water sources from things like mountaintop removal. Um, burning it puts pollutants into the air that cause respiratory problems. We all know in North Carolina the impacts of coal ash leaking into our waterways and getting into drinking water sources. And then we at the Beyond Coal campaign and then along with a number of allies have been fighting for years to convince Duke to do the right thing and put the coal ash waste into unlined pits. And thankfully recently we had a settlement ag agreement to excavate most of the coal ash in the state, which I think is great. But it just illustrates that there's no real perfect remedy or solution to what to do with coal ash. So it's problematic from the extraction all the way to what to do with the waste. Um, and particularly when it comes to climate. Um, in addition, today, it just doesn't make economic sense. 
customers in North Carolina and all across the country who are relying on coal are paying more for their electricity than they need to pay. Um, in many cases, it's more effective to shut down a coal plant, actually even just pay the utility of the remaining plant balance for that coal plant and replace it with clean energy resources because the clean energy resources that you would use to replace the coal plant are so much less expensive mm. than just running the coal plant on a daily basis. Yeah. So it's a, it's a loser economically. And then the other thing I would say is that um, it just coal is not nimble the way that other energy resources are. Right, you can't have a, a coal plant on in your backyard or on your roof or anything like that. Yeah, and you can't turn it up and down very well based on the needs of uh, the, the grid. So unlike uh, other things like energy efficiency or potentially demand response, um, you can't turn up a coal plant up and down quickly to meet the needs that are you know, exists on the grid at that moment. So, and the term is ramping, right? Ramping is kind of up and down, yeah. And then there's a set of ancillary benefits around things like voltage control that um, coal plants provide, but they're not as nimble as other uh, sources could be and technologies. So, what's the status of coal in North Carolina currently? There's six remaining coal plants uh, in North Carolina. One, the Asheville coal plant. Uh, just shut down uh, at the end of January, so wow. January 29th or 30th. Yes, yeah. awesome. Um, Shout out to Asheville. Yes, uh, and so there's a handful of coal plants left in the uh, left in the state, and our goal is to make sure all those coal plants are retired by the end of the decade. And what kind of messaging are you using, and is the Sierra Club using to expedite that process? Yeah, I mean, I think the truth. Our messaging, I think, there's a couple of messages that resonate and are important. And the, for us as an environmental organization that's largely focused on how to deal with the climate crisis, we think it's really important uh, to lead with a message of the impacts of climate of our reliance on coal. So coal is the easiest way to reduce the amount of emissions that are we're spewing into the air that are causing fueling the climate crisis. Um, it's dirty. Yeah, there's no real effective way to limit the carbon that comes out of coal. So the best thing you can do is actually just retire it and move away from it. And actually, we could. Um, I know a lot of your listeners are probably aware of the governor's executive order around climate change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talked about it with our episode with Secretary Regan. So if you're unfamiliar with Executive Order 80, make sure you go back and listen to the episode with Secretary Regan because we talk about EO80 there. Yeah. And so, you know, some of those goals are to eliminate or limit, uh, reduce carbon emissions uh, by 40% by 2025. Um, we could do that just by eliminating coal and replacing it with clean energy. So wow. we wouldn't have to make any other changes, and that would get us to the economy-wide reduction we need to get. Wow. So it's a very kind of narrow way to get real lasting reductions. The second message we lead with is just the economics around it. So coal is not cheap. It is, in many cases, the most expensive way to generate energy. And you see that in how Duke uses the coal fleet here in North Carolina. It's very often the last thing dispatched, so the first thing Duke will call on when they need electricity are things like their nuclear plants, clean energy. The clean energy because it's, the fuel's free, right? So it, once it's built, it doesn't cost very much to operate it. 
then they will call on their gas plants, and then lastly, they will call on their coal plants. So mm -hmm. because of that, they're just running less and less. And if you look at how often and how much a coal plant runs over the last five or 10 years, it these plants were designed to run 60, 80% of the time. And in some cases, they're running less than 10% of the time. Uh, almost the entire coal fleet is running less than half of the time. So, wow. Yeah. Um, so it just doesn't make kind of economic sense to do it. And there's cheaper, better ways to get what we need. Yeah. So, you you know, when you're having conversations about energy and about economics, you hear a lot about stranded assets. So what is a stranded asset and how can we deal with stranded assets as it relates to coal? Yeah, we tend to think of um, both stranded assets are, are particularly a kind of a decision that's made, but then there's potentially stranded assets, right? It's Which in that case it is. In the electricity sector, it would be a plant that's no longer economically viable, but is still out there. And so, so, and when you mean when you say economically viable, what I understand it is that you are actually paying more for the electricity than the electricity is worth that's being created. Yeah, you're essentially paying more for the electricity than you would be if you replaced it with just something different. Yeah. Even if you had to build that thing from scratch. Yeah. Um, and we. They're potentially stranded assets because the, whether or not they are stranded is largely in North Carolina a determination of the Utilities Commission. At some point, the Utilities Commission can make a decision that it doesn't make sense to let Duke collect cost recovery on a plant because it's not economically viable. We would argue that there is a number of uh, coal plants across North Carolina right now that are potentially stranded assets, meaning, back to your point, is that customers are paying more for the electricity that comes from them than they would if you were just starting from scratch and building something today because that new thing is cheaper than it costs to even run uh, the coal plant and pay just the operational costs, let alone the remaining plant balance that's owed on the construction of it. So listeners who were along for the ride of Senate Bill 559, which was a long and twisty and bumpy ride, will remember that securitization and specifically storm damage securitization was you know, always in Senate Bill 559, but then when the controversial multi-year rate plans and return on equity banding were removed from Senate Bill 559, securitization for storm damage assets, storm damage assets remained in the bill, and that's essentially became the essence of of the Senate Bill 559 that passed and became law. So, uh, can you walk us through what generally is securitization? Yeah, I mean, securitization is a lot like refinancing your home. I think it's a good way for people to think about it. So you have a mortgage on your house, interest rates go down. In a lot of cases, it makes sense to refinance your house to get a low, lower interest rate. You end up paying more, less money over time because of that. Securitization is a, a very similar concept. So you borrow money to pay off, in this case, the plant balance, the remaining amount of money and debt associated with a coal plant, for example, or the costs associated with fixing the poles and wires from a storm. And because it's attached to the rate payers, it's called rate payer backed bonds. So the money is a line item on every customer's bills that's not severable. The Utilities Commission can't take it away. 
it's bankrupt adjacent, which means that even if a company, Duke, went bankrupt, that money would still come in. The You're able to get a really low interest rate, uh, and that allows the cost of borrowing to be so much lower that it saves customers money in the long run. So for storm costs, for example, it allows them to borrow the money that they need to deal with that at a much lower rate, lowering the overall output that the customers are going to have to pay back in order to get that money back. And it's been used on a number of different ways. A storm securitization here, now um, it can be used, but and it's been used in that in other places. Duke Energy actually used it to pay off the remaining balance of a broken nuclear plant in Florida, and it ended up saving customers about $700 million. Wow. Um, they couldn't repair it, so I think um, it was a wise way to recover those costs. Some of the indications that we're getting are saying that Duke might not use the storm securitization that was authorized in Senate Bill 559. And of course, that calls into question whether or not you need storm damage securitization before you would expand it to something like coal. So do you see storm damage asset securitization as a prerequisite to expanding securitization to encompass coal? No, I don't think it's necessary. I think there's plenty of places that have securitization that didn't lead with something like storm damage securitization. I think um, there's places that went from no securitization to utilizing it largely around fossil assets. Securitization, I think it's worth noting, has been around for decades. It has recently kind of come back into vogue largely because of the economic nature of the coal fleet and the likelihood that a bunch of assets could potentially be stranded, as you noted. So places like Colorado, Montana, uh, New Mexico have all passed a securitization that allows it to be used on uneconomic fossil assets. So we advocated uh, that the General Assembly actually include it to begin with, because why have to come back and expand it at a later date when you could have just done it right then? And we would argue that it's securitization is just a tool. Mm-hmm. It's a tool to save customers money and limiting it scope to some narrow thing like storms just didn't make any sort of sense and we should utilize it to save customers money in as many different ways that we can. Yeah, and it's a win-win in a lot of ways too because the the uh, as you noted the the utility is recovering that money quicker so that they can use it in different projects that uh, can you know either securitize these coal plants or they can move forward and and start building out new clean energy resources so so when it, I mean, where do you think the opposition comes from? Why, you know, why why not expand securitization now? Yeah, I mean, I think the opposition comes from a couple of different places, and they're not necessarily ideologically aligned. So, from the utility side, there is a concern around being forced to use it because while they get all of their plant balance money back, the rate of return goes away. So they do take a little haircut on their profit side, and then the other additional thing I think that I expect most utilities are concerned about is like how do they replace that in the rate base because it erodes what's included in the rate base. As you noted, it frees up capital that they can invest in things that the public might be more supportive of and would save us all money. So replacing that generation needs with things like solar and wind power, energy efficiency programs, et cetera. Um, So that's, I think, from the utility side is they want to make sure that they have a robust rate base and they want to make as much money as possible. And then I think there's some uh, concern from some advocates that the utility shouldn't be able to 
recover any of those costs. The Utilities Commission should dis disallow all that cost recovery based on the uneconomic nature of the coal plants. I, you know, I think it's unlikely that the utility would do that at it, or the Utilities Commission would do that in any sort of expansive way. So we see securitization as a tool to save customers money, make sure the utility is at least made whole um, and is a person at the table, and it allows us to accelerate uh, clean energy deployment because, as I said, kind of jokingly, I'm the person who talks about the dirty energy all the time, but the reality is we can't rely only on incremental growth as a way to accelerate our development of clean energy resources. We really need to get the dirty energy off the grid to open up that pie even a little bit more so that we can um, move at the pace that we need to move. So let's talk about life after coal, because as the Sierra Club, you know, indicates, they want to achieve a 100% clean energy future by 2050. And you're, and you're hearing that as a benchmark for a lot of companies and organizations and, and states and countries. So how can we support the communities that whose jobs might be and will be eliminated by closing things like coal mines, coal plants, and the, the, the ancillary industries that revolve around coal, how can we support those communities so they can thrive as opposed to having them be left behind? Yeah, no, I think that's a really important question. I think that is one of the reasons why it's so important uh, for the utility to be transparent and clear with those communities about what the plan is for those coal plants. Um, as I noted, coal is going to go away eventually. The key is to how do we, one, get rid of it as quickly as we possible as we possibly need to to avoid the worst impacts of climate change, and then two, as we do that, how do we support those communities in that transition? So I think step one is the utility being transparent and open about what their plans are when they are going to retire those. So one of the things that we've asked Duke is to just publicly announce those retirement plans and commit to them so we can start that conversation. The second thing I think is because of the amount of money that's being wasted on uneconomic coal plants, shifting to a smarter in a smarter direction creates a pot of money. And this is one of the advantages of securitization. And it's something that's been included in places like securitization legislation in Colorado. So they included transition funding, which creates a pot of money from those savings that would exist um, and empowers the community to make decisions on how to use that money to aid in that transition. So I don't think it's the Sierra Club's role to tell these co communities what they should do or what they need. I think all those answers need to come from the communities. So creating funds uh, through securitization, through partnerships between the government and the utility to um, give the community the resources that it needs to make those decisions to be able to transition. What are you encouraged about when it comes to the, the transitioning beyond coal? What, what keeps you hopeful? Because a lot of this, you know, we kind of talked about, you know, this earlier uh, before the show, but I think a lot of people see work being done to transition away from coal as, a, as like a negative or, you know, something where we're trying to put blame on a certain industry for, for, you know, the woes of the past or, you know, the problems that come from it. But what keeps you hopeful and positively inspired to, to continue this work? Yeah, I mean, I think I have a lot of hope. And I do think um, the 
coal industry has had played a huge role in the development of the United States. And I think those miners, um, coal plant employees and stuff deserve a lot of credit for helping make that happen. So I think blaming the people working in the industry isn't right, nor is it healthy. So I think we need to acknowledge the role in the uh, work that those folks have done and make sure that they have a healthy way to transition as we move away from it. Um, but I have a lot of hope, largely just because uh, it's happening right now. The work needs to be how do we kind of speed it up and do it in an equitable way. But the across the country, you're seeing stories of utilities shifting away from coal um, and shifting to clean energy purely based on dollars and cents. So uh, NIPSCO, which is a utility up in Indiana, committed to retiring their coal. They did an all-source request for procurement to identify the cheapest resources to replace it that were totally technologically neutral, and it all came back as clean energy is the most effective option in terms of Wow. So, so when you say all source requests, you mean that there would have been bids submitted to this utility where, you know, someone's proposing a new natural gas plant, someone's proposing new solar or new wind. I don't know if they have, they have wind in any Yeah, yeah they're sure. part of MISO, so they yeah. can get wind through their market. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, they bids for whatever you wanted, demand response programs, energy efficiency, and the things that won were all the clean sources. They, they aren't going to build any new gas plants. Wow. Well, that's really exciting, and, and I think that hopefully listeners take away from this show a hope that we are going to move not from just one source to another, but from one way of doing energy to a completely new paradigm where it's bringing good-paying jobs that are making people healthy, that are making communities healthier, it's preserving the environment. I mean, we've had so many issues with coal. I mean, you hear it, you hear about coal ash in the news all the time. We didn't really get a chance to talk about that today. But I think a lot of the, the issues that have been had with coal, we, we can appreciate them because it has been such an integral part of our economy. Uh, but it's exciting to know that we can transcend that and move beyond it to something that really can provide lasting positive impact for our communities. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, it. the other thing that gets me excited is it's going to improve people's lives. Mm-hmm. Like, the air is going to be cleaner. I mean, imagine living in a world where everything runs on electricity, and that's part of the Beyond Coal's work is like, how do we both electrify everything, cars, buses, buildings, while at the same time making sure that that energy comes from clean, renewable sources. Um, And you're still going to be able to flip on a light whenever you want, but you can do so in a way where your air is healthier to breathe, where the water is safer to drink. Um, I don't know about how many of your listeners, but as someone who grew up riding a school bus, it's like I have memories of like breathing that. Oh, yeah. Disgusting school bus. I would get a headache on the way back from school almost every day. You get it in the bus, too, right? It wasn't just like when it was driving by. Um, And so the thought of like, oh, kids can ride on an electric bus that produces no emissions whatsoever, and the electricity that powers it actually doesn't produce any emissions. I mean, that gives me a lot of hope, and it actually inspires me. And I think we have the technology to get there today. It's just all about how quickly can we deploy it so that vision becomes a reality. 
well, we need to end the show so we can get back to work, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> work never done. Yeah. Well, wow, Dave, this was really informative for all of us and is really grounding for clean energy because, you know, obviously we're trying to move forward, but we also need to look back and, and, and appreciate our history as an energy sector and an energy industry and, and see the people who have gotten us to where we are now. And uh, we really appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much for all the work that you do. And uh, thanks for coming on the pod. No, happy to join anytime. Thanks. And there you have it, folks, the 23rd episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Bringing the latest in clean energy right to your ears. Yes, sir. Now, Ben, you and I were just talking about what an incredible episode this was. It was very interesting to learn about the history of the use of coal in North Carolina. Yeah, coal has been an important part of our economy, and it's driven us to pass the Industrial Revolution Mm -hmm. into modern America. So it's important to understand coal from a holistic perspective and then start to realize how we can transition beyond it. I definitely agree. And Jarvis, what was your key takeaway for the show? My key takeaway is how quickly the state of North Carolina is changing to become more clean energy dependent. Dave really is working on the forefront, and it's great to hear that we've gone from being a state with 14 coal plants to now six, with the most recent one being decommissioned at the end of January. Ben, what was your key takeaway? My key takeaway goes back to what Dave was saying about going beyond coal. And I know that sounds kind of simple, but the idea is not necessarily just to shut the door on one industry within the energy sector, but Mm -hmm. to open up other doors for economic opportunities for people that are part of the coal industry, because obviously we don't want to leave those folks behind. Of course. And we want to encompass them into the clean energy evolution, into the evolution of our energy sector, and make sure that they are a part of this positive transition that's that's essentially going to make their lives better with cleaner air, cleaner water, better paying jobs, Mm -hmm. and jobs that propel us into the future. Correct. So Ben, can you tell us a little bit about our next episode? Yes, our next episode is going to feature Leah Stokes, who is a Canadian political science and expert on environmental policy. She's an assistant professor of political science at UC Santa Barbara. She investigates the politics of energy. So we're going to be talking about voter data. We're going to be talking about trends and how people vote as it relates to energy. So we're getting a little more political in that show, which I think is important, especially as the the, the primaries are coming up and we're talking about caucuses and elections Mm -hmm. and 2020 is a big year so we really want to take a look at how people are going to be assessing energy in the 2020 elections and beyond well we are very much looking forward to that episode and it has a wonderful timing yeah yeah so thanks so much for everyone for listening to the show we really hope you got something out of it and uh yeah let's work on this transition beyond coal together i think it's something that we all have to work together to achieve and uh, i think we can do it i agree awesome thanks y'all Have a good one.